That's like, I don't bring my dog to restaurants because he doesn't belong in restaurants. But there's all these people who do bring their pets to restaurants that don't belong in restaurants. I know. I don't bring my chickens to like nice restaurants only, you know, more more casual places. (laughs) Unless it's their last day on earth and they're for dinner. Don't say that. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. On this week's episode, some updates on stories we've been covering lately. First, the city of New Orleans announced a new violence prevention initiative that will include the reintroduction of so-called violence interrupters who had been sidelined for the past two years. And the Louisiana Supreme Court has declined to take up a case challenging the legality of sending kids arrested in Louisiana to juvenile detention centers out of state. Also, as insurance companies across the country are facing increased costs dealing with the effects of climate change, Louisiana has been particularly hard hit. And the Orleans Parish School Board president has said the increases they're facing are unsustainable. Those stories, insight, and analysis coming up on Behind the Lens. Joining us this week, criminal justice reporter Nick Crastle. Hi, Nick. Hey, Carolyn. And education reporter Marta Jusen. Hi, Marta. Hey, Carolyn. So, Nick and Marta, we're going to start with you guys on the violence uh, interrupter story. Last week, we talked about this team. They were called Cure Violence. They had been sidelined from their efforts as violence interrupters for about two years, but now the city, under the direction of Dr. Jennifer Avegno, announced a new program that brings them back into the fold. Tell us what was announced at that press conference. So very appropriately, um, Dr. Jennifer Avegno and many other city staffers, including a couple of council members, met on Friday and held a press conference, um, which was Wear Orange Day, which is a national day of remembrance uh, for people who have been victims of and affected by gun violence. Um, Obviously, many of them clad in orange up at the podium. Um, and they are, you know, talking about uh, bringing back and reworking. Uh, in one case, she said in, qu- in quotes, re-envisioned, um, you know, aspects of this program that has kind of taken many forms over the years. Okay. Were any of those people present? Any of the the violence interrupters from, from previous days? I do not believe any of the the actual violence interrupt, the credible messengers yep. were present. Um, but, you know, Patrick Young was there. He's the head of the Office of Gun Violence Prevention. They also had a very, very heavy presence of um, University Medical Center staff. I think, you know, they were really trying to show an emphasis on, you know, what what type of harm gun violence does do in our community, um, like from the literal emergency room and operating department side of things. Okay. Um, Nick, the administration has been talking about this initiative for a while now. What's the meat of, of the initiative? Well, that's a good question. I think sort of remains to be seen, especially kind of given the history of this program, and given kind of the history of this more general public health approach to gun violence, as we've heard the administration talk about since since the beginning and, and you know, previous administrations talk about as well. So um, just for kind of some brief background, the city's violence interruption program started under Mayor Mitch Landrieu in 2012 and was known as Ceasefire. And the goal of that program was to send out people who had been, you know, involved in the criminal justice system, who had experiences with with kind of street level violence, um, who could go in and and talk to people who might be uh, at risk for for being a victim of or perpetrating gun violence identify conflicts and try and mediate them before they happen. And they would do this, 
you know, they, they, the credible message that I've talked to have said, you know, we, we have no problem with law enforcement, but, but one of the things we need to do is maintain some distance so that we can have, you know, honest and open conversations with the people who might uh, be engaging in this sort of stuff. And, and so they can trust us um, and we can do our work. Um, so that program, you know, existed under the Landry administration, both as a community-based program in Central City where um, credible messengers, violence interrupters would would uh, talk to people in the neighborhood and try and figure out, you know, what conflicts might be happening. Um, but then they would also respond at the hospital to people who had who were gunshot wound victims and and would talk with them and try and prevent retaliatory violence. So those were kind of the two elements of it. And, you know, for the most part, city leaders were applauded this program and thought it, thought it was doing pretty good work. And Mayor Cantrell as well, um, as a city council uh, woman before she became mayor, um, was an advocate for it um, for the most part and kind of promised to expand it once she, she her administration came. Since then, however, people who worked uh, in ceasefire and as credible messengers said basically it was it was ramped down during her administration despite kind of public pronouncements that that she wanted to continue with it and that she was in support of it. When the administration started the Office of Gun Violence Prevention in 2021, there was this real shift in how that program worked. So they were they were still responding to shootings and they were responding to uh, homicide scenes and they would interact with families and interact with victims. But they started uh, focusing much less on identifying the conflicts and trying to actually stop the violence versus providing services and support to the victims, to the families of victims. And all of the credible messengers, people who actually had the experiences uh, on the street and, and, and had these uh, ostensible relationships with the community um, were sidelined and, and uh, social workers were hired. Um, so it was a real shift, shift in the focus. While previously the program was sort of run in conjunction between um, the city and Urban League of Louisiana, who is the office, the Office of Gun Violence Prevention's prior fiscal sponsor. Now UMC will be running the program themselves. Okay. Um, so the city will will fund it, and UMC will hire the the credible messengers, um, and and the violence interrupters, and will be responsible for kind of managing the program. It does sound like a, I thought it sounded like kind of a simplification of that process and that it, it, it would make some sense to house those people in there um, versus potentially housing them at the city. But um, Nick, I think you're right. Like there's still kind of in those giant three bullet points they pointed out, there's, there's still a lot of unanswered questions um, in kind of this program that is to come. And before Sorry, we, I don't know if that makes sense. you know, I'm not to trying to throw shade at the whole thing, but I'm, I'm curious about in the story, it sounds a little bit like she was slightly defensive about the violence interrupters program that it, it was, I think she was saying, no, we, we always have wanted to include them and any um, suggestion that we have not is, is incorrect. First of all, um, and correct me if I'm wrong in that. But in the previous conversation that we had about this and in the story you wrote, when you all talked to credible messengers, they had no idea what was going on. So I'm trying to understand, uh, 
if they didn't know what was happening and yet Dr. Avegno was saying, no, 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 they're part of the whole thing. How do you explain that, that gap in, in communication? I guess. So yeah. I, I think I'll let, I'm going to let Nick handle most of this, but what I do want to mention is that I, I think there's kind of a, there's kind of this space for uh, interpretation of what happened with the program, right? Like, some stuff was happening in Florida together in New Orleans. A lapse in the CEA or the CEA with a fiscal sponsor led to the program stoppage. And there's definitely room to in interpret that as it not being a priority, right? If these things were kind of allowed to lapse. Um, but then, and then when Katie and I were walking away from the press conference, we were talking with Dr. Annalise DeWolf and Dr. Erica Rajo who, you know, they literally brought this issue up to us. They were they were kind of like, you know, your guys' coverage, we were, we're not, you know, no one wanted to stop this or wanted this to end. Like, this stuff is a priority for us. And we were like, look, we literally talked through that when we were running through Nick's drafts, when Katie was running through your drafts. And, you know, we all took a close look at that language. But the fact of the matter is that, you know, these things did lapse and things did stop. So despite how we might word it exactly there, you know, there was either whether it's a drop in prioritization or a shift away from, or how you put it, you know, things, things did kind of fall apart. I mean, these people also weren't the people making the decisions. Right. So that's part of it. Right. Too. And I guess, I mean, the fair, let's, let's not make a mess where there shouldn't be one because the, the, I guess that the headline is that it's back. Yeah, definitely. Like, that... <laughs> I, I think, I think we, we can acknowledge that that you know it appears they're making making an effort to to renew the program, and I think I think sincerely want it to succeed. I don't think anyone you know would would claim that this is not a sin, a sincere effort. Um, but I think we can also acknowledge that that this was you know when the Office of Gun Violence Prevention was was announced in 2021, it sounded really really similar to this. Um, and when, you know, Mayor Cantrell announced cure violence in 2018, it sounded really, really similar to this. So, you know, I think it's worth just, just keeping in mind the history of this program and, and, you know, hopefully those kind of false starts or, um, or issues along the way can, can, you know, provide some, some foundational knowledge for how, for how to move forward and have a program that, that really is effective. Um, and you know, that's, I, not everyone agrees that a program like this will be effective. Mm. So that's another, you know, aspect of it, but yeah, you know, like you said, I, that, that is the kind of main takeaway here is that, is that they're trying to move forward with something and, and, right. you know, UMC has not been the in charge of this before. Um, so that'll be, a, a um, new element to it and, and they'll be able to kind of shape it, I think, how, how they see fit. Um, you know, one interesting element is that they are taking this out of the, um, out from the, under the umbrella of the Office of Gun Violence Prevention. And, you know, I think we'll see what ultimately becomes of that office or if they are continuing to try and find a new fiscal sponsor and, and staff up again or whether or not going to cease to exist, essentially. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, we'll see about that. And Nick, like you said in your first, in that initial story about the programs kind of winding down and disappearing, um, that council member who had said, you know, why does everyone just need to put their own stamp on this and rebrand it and give it a new name with all these restarts? Like, why can't we just 
find a, find something and stick with it. So I think, you know, when it feels like there's rebranding and things happening like that, that can be, that can be very frustrating to people who don't necessarily see anything coming of it. Right. And confusing. Yeah. All right, Nick, another story that we're kind of revisiting here. Last year, we talked about an effort that had been made by justice advocates and some of their attorneys who were petitioning the Louisiana Supreme Court to take up a case challenging the legality of sending kids who were arrested in Louisiana to detention centers that were not in Louisiana. So the the background here is that, you know, for years now, um, parishes and cities throughout Louisiana have been contracting with out-of-state juvenile detention facilities to hold kids that have been arrested in their parishes or or cities um, prior to adjudication, which is, you know, kind of the juvenile equivalent of trial. So so these are kids who haven't been convicted of anything or found guilty or or sentenced to state custody. Um, These are kids who have just been arrested and are waiting for their cases to kind of play out through the system. Um, And they are being sent sometimes, you know, hours, many hours away from their families and, and lawyers into other states, um, Mississippi and Alabama. So, you know, there's people object to to this practice on the basis of just, we shouldn't be sending kids this far away. These kids should be stay in their community while they're, you know, awaiting adjudication and have easy access to, to family members, to, to lawyers. This is, you know, a, a would be much better for their rehabilitation if that, if that's necessary or or just well-being in general, but also some advocates and attorneys have have alleged that it's illegal, um, that juvenile detention facilities need to be licensed by the State Department of Child and Family Services, um, which these out-of-state facilities are not. The law itself requires that juvenile detention facilities be licensed, but there's also no language in, in the statute that says you can't send kids across state lines or mm. that out-of-state uh, facilities need to be licensed. And so the Supreme Court of Louisiana declining to hear the case answers the question of whether or not they even thought it was legal. By declining, they, that's the implication is that they thought there's nothing illegal about the practice? Well, not exactly. Um, so the case was... Uh, the, the case is... is related to a a kid who was arrested in Assumption Parish um, and sent to a juvenile detention facility in Mississippi. And his lawyer filed, um, you know, a challenge to to holding him there and eventually, you know, took that up to the Supreme Court. Now, before the Supreme Court issued any decision, the kid was adjudicated and sent into state custody. So once that happened, the district attorney's office, who uh, it, it, who covers Assumption Parish, filed a motion to the Supreme Court saying, this case is now moved. Um, the kid is no longer being held in Mississippi. You don't need to take up this case because um, won't have any make any difference now that he's not being held in Mississippi. Uh, the lawyer for the for the kid, Richard Brazan said, no, you know, look, this is still a pertinent issue. Lots of kids are being sent out of state. Um, if the, the child that I'm representing gets arrested again, he may very well be sent out of state. So you should still uh, rule on this. So with the Supreme Court's ruling, there's really no way of knowing whether or not they decided that this particular case was moot or whether or not they didn't want to address the issue at all. Um, so it, it really you know, it's, a, it's still an open question. Mm. Um, they're not saying this practice is legal. 
and they could have, they could have, you know, issued, issued an opinion kind of laying that out or taken up the case and heard it more fully and, and, but they didn't. They declined to, to write anything. Exactly. There's that, there's so many legal avenues here too, right? Like we had the initial was whether or not they were licensed in by the Louisiana Department of Health and right. Services, like licensed by the state of Louisiana. But I have to assume there are other legal avenues, whether it's like the healthcare those kids are getting in those facilities the, or who those people are licensed by. Uh, I also have long said and probably drive Nick nuts by saying this, but that education is potentially one, right? Like they're required to be provided an education. So who provides that? Who are those people licensed by? Does that meet our state's requirements? Right. That's one of the arguments about this is that is that we really have very little information about what is going on at these other facilities. You know, the state doesn't have really any authority to demand data or information from these facilities. For instance, a fight occurs and and a, a kid is arrested, you know, then they have an open pending charge in another state where they are, you know, required to um, deal with that there. Mm. Um, so there's a lot of troubling things about this. And I'll say uh, almost everyone agrees that that it's not a, a sustainable or ideal way to handle this. You know, even the even the um, jurisdictions that are sending kids out of state would much prefer to have a place to put them closer by. And some district attorneys and sheriffs are advocating for the state to build more juvenile detention facilities so that they can house kids. You know, I think for kind of people in the in the juvenile justice world um, who, who represent the kids, a lot of them would argue we just need to be putting less kids in detention in the first place um, and really kind of uh, be more um, critical about, about who needs to be there and, and who can kind of be out in the community and, and wait, await oh, adjudication, not in detention. Right. Um, so we'll see how that, how that all plays out, but yeah, really everyone agrees that it's, that it's not, not good to, to be sending these kids so far away. Um, where where the state really has no oversight. Well, to be hopeful and a little bit idealistic, maybe the first story we talked about, the violence interrupters reintroduction into the streets and into the system, maybe there'll be a little bit less violence, a little less, fewer kids having to deal with situations like this. That is that is hopeful. And <laughs> I mean, New Orleans is not one of the jurisdictions that is sending kids um, mm. out of state. So, so that kind of direct line isn't quite so, so clear, but you know, all all these things are, are connected and and lots of people would argue that, that kind of working on prevention on the front end, you know, things like education, things like economic stability, that those those sorts of issues will, you know, slow the um, flow of kids into the, into the criminal legal system in the first place. Thank you for that segue. Schools are next. You're listening to Behind the Lens. I'm Carolyn Heldman. My guests this week are criminal justice reporter Nick Krastel and education reporter Marta Jusen. Hi, I'm Madeline Arufo, and I'm a freelance reporter for The Lens. When you listen to this podcast or read a story at our website, you join in on the process of examining life and culture in a way that makes us all better citizens and better people. With more and more noise and information coming at us every day, it's important to have a place you can rely on for truth and balance. 
Please make a tax-deductible donation to support our work at our website, thelensnola.org donate. And thank you. Marta, the Orleans Parish School Board is facing dramatic increases in the cost of insuring their properties across the city. Tell us what they announced. Well, that's just it. We didn't announce anything specific yet. So the the district's property insurance policy is going to run out at the end of the month on June 30th. And Mm. it looks like they're going to start the new year, uh, July 1st, without knowing how much their property insurance is going to cost next year. Oh, boy. And that's a pretty scary thing to go into um, when their property insurance year over year raised nearly 50% last time. Um, that was in the wake of Ida. It jumped from 7.6 million per year to 11.2 million this year. That's just finishing up. Right. There's been some pretty high profile announcements by insurance companies that actually are pulling out of entire communities, entire states, or not, not declining to um, insure new buildings, things like that. Last year, the the Orleans Parish School Board had a 50% increase, you said, year over year? Yep, just about, yep. Okay, and so the, their insurers this year, there may be a letter in the mail and they just have no idea what it has in store for them? No, I think, I mean, they're actively talking with these people and trying to get quotes. They just, um, I think the numbers aren't going to drop until until it's the end of the month. I mean, these, uh, are they actuarials? Whatever, <laughs> Whatever tables and numbers that, you know, these um, companies are crunching to try and and ensure the Orleans Parish School Board or, you know, any of these other large agencies or even homeowners, honestly, are are continually being run. So I think they're just they're still working on that policy and we don't know what it's going to look like. They shop it year to year. They generally shop it year to year. They didn't specifically talk about um, getting multiple quotes this year, but I, I know that they have in the past. And I would assume with what's happening now, they're also doing that. But, you know, it's also possible that they're they're sticking with their current insurer if, if that's their only option. I mean, that's that's happening to a lot of people in the in the state. Um, and it looks, you know, that's kind of rippling throughout the country. Right. We just started seeing State Farm and Allstate uh, are not offering new homeowners policies in California anymore, for instance. Um, so I do think we're going to start getting a little more national attention on the issue, which you know, honestly, it could be good for Louisianans, something that we've known for a long time. Tell us how this sort of dovetails or impacts the right sizing that they're undergoing right now. Sure. So the Orleans Parish School Board owns, I mean, they own more than 100 properties. Most of them are schools. Um, The majority of those schools are leased to charter groups who occupy them. There are some buildings that sit like vacant year to year um, or used kind of for swing space for schools. And then there are other buildings that have been like long vacant, vacant since the storm, you know, boarded up, boxed up, not in any type of usable condition, but obviously uh, still have to carry some type of insurance um, on them. So what happens with the right sizing is that basically the district's enrollment projections did not play out. We did not grow as big as they thought we were going to grow. Um, which is problematic in the way that they were issuing charters, um, which to my knowledge had no control mechanism on how many charters they were issuing in this kind of, you know, open market system. And to be fair, the Orleans Parish School Board didn't necessarily have control of all of that because, you know, the the district only reunited with the state-run recovery school district, which also had the power to issue charters um, in 2019. So, Think of you have all these charter schools, right? We expanded really, really big. The number of students we thought would 
come into the district, have not come into the district. So now you've got these students spread across schools and the schools aren't all full. Mm. So what happens when you're running an under-enrolled school is it becomes more expensive per pupil to operate that school. So you have basic costs like heating and air conditioning and property maintenance and those kind of fixed costs that don't go away, even if, you know, you don't need to fill another classroom and pay another teacher. Right. So when they do receive the quote, will they let you know? I mean, I'm sure they'll let the board and the public know why this has been an issue this week is that they're, the board's going to be going over its budget tonight. And that's obviously something that you would like to see before you approve your annual budget. So that's, you know, kind of where the, the sticking point was and the reason that we're talking about it this week. Um, the district's um, executive director of risk management, Tracy Griffin Robertson, said, you know, if if she'd been asked, you know, seven years ago what when they would have received this information, she was like, it absolutely would have been in like April or May. Um, but the board member who asked her that question was like, when do we normally find this out? And and Griffin Robertson was like, I don't think, you know, there is a normal anymore. So, oh, okay. We just don't know yet and we're not going to know. So this is just insurance company dragging their heels from the way they had been providing the information in the past. I think so. And I mean, it probably depends on, you know, it's interesting because the district renews right in the middle of the year. So for these insurance companies that are mm. insuring other, what I'm presuming are, you know, like municipal agencies and stuff. Um, those many of those people are probably reinsuring on the calendar year. So, you know, that kind of feels like either, either the districts, well, I kept saying the districts like the canary in the coal mine here, but we already know what's happening in the coal mine. So it's <laughs> right. Not, right. It, oh it's God. not going to be a surprise. It's going to increase. Right. We just don't know by how much. Right. And then that month, that, that cost all trickles down to each the charter schools who pay the district back on a per pupil basis for property insurance. I did talk to one charter operations manager who thinks that some of that cost of insuring the vacant and unused buildings and like the office building is passed on to charters in that per pupil calculation. Um, and when I reached out to the district to ask that specific question and a couple of board members today, they, the district came back and said, I'm just going to read this exactly. They say, the district pays a pro rata portion of the premium for vacant facilities as well as office space at Timbers and Mahalia Jackson, which are their two buildings. I've asked for a little more clarification exactly on how those calculations work out for that pro rata calculation, but um, it does seem like the district does pick up some of its own cost, but it, you know, it's unclear how much. And then I asked if they could please clarify, you know, does that include, you know, is a school ending up paying property insurance on a vacant building that the district just can't sell? you know, doesn't include those buildings that are on the surplus list or is it only, you know, maybe those schools that are swing spaces or their own properties. Right. Some sleepless nights in that budget office, I'm guessing right now. Yep. And and yep, for the school directors too, because they need to know those numbers to pass their budgets in the upcoming months and present to their charter boards and know how that's going to affect their bottom line or what activities they can offer students or, you know, anything like that. Right. Oh boy. All right. Thanks, Marta. Thanks. Thanks for your time, you guys. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from the Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. Thanks to our guest this week, criminal justice reporter Nick Crastle and education reporter Marta Jusen. You can read all the week's other news plus opinions at our website, thelensnola.org. Thanks for listening.